Heavenly Father, thank you for the energy, for the excitement, for the earnest desire to serve you among those in this church. We are small, Father, but that is by your doing. And we are determined to do whatever it is you call us to do with and by the resources you provide. But, Father, you can do great things with what seems to be the most meager of resources. And you often choose it that way, Father, for your own glory. We know that from the pages of Scripture and from the history of your work. So don't let us, Father, think too little of ourselves so that we may miss the opportunities to serve. And never let us think so much of ourselves, Father, that we would rob you of the glory that is rightfully yours. But keep us, Father, in a heart of always seeking to do as much as we can for the glory of of who you are, but always in resting in the power of the Spirit to do it. The Word of God, Father, is the fuel for that engine in our hearts, and we ask that you would use it today to drive us forward in our walk and away from sin and away from disobedience, but always with a full appreciation that we depend and rest in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 32. We're going to finish the chapter today. And with it, one of the highlights in the story of Jacob. So turn there with me, if you will, chapter 32. We pick up again where we left off in verse 22. If you look at the story of Jacob in the pages of Genesis and you seek for a climactic moment in his story, in his personal story, then the end of chapter 32 certainly must be it. Jacob's story is easily the most complex of all of the patriarchs. Of the three patriarchs we study, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his life is the most messy of anyone's. And think through just the three men for a moment and you'll see what I mean. Abraham's life was mostly a testimony to faithfulness. He was willing to take risks. He was willing to shoulder burdens that God gave him in faithfulness to God's word. There were a few times in which his faith came up short and he succumbed to impatience. And we know he's not a perfect man. But for the most part, he walked a straight line with God and earned that title the father of faith. Isaac, his son, actually lived the longest of the three patriarchs. But what's so odd about him is his life is largely uneventful in the pages of Scripture, comparatively so. Apart from sharing some of his father's impatience, Isaac basically maintains the testimony that his father established. And even beyond his father to some degree, because he never left the land, unlike Abraham and unlike Jacob. He was notable, though, for a weakness and His chief weakness was in favoring the wrong child, in contrast to who God favored. But now Jacob is easily, as I said, the most complex patriarch in the record of Genesis. Probably because of his father's favoritism for his brother Esau, he, Jacob, develops this strong sense of self-determination, of control, of managing his own life. And as a result, his story is filled with trials and struggles both against men and against God. That's his testimony. And Jacob, though he was a man who knew and he followed the Lord in his own life, he has this troubling tendency we've watched now throughout the last several chapters in which he doubles down on every action or every plan that God gives him. It isn't sufficient for him to rest in God's work. He has to go beyond and above what God does. He has to scheme. He has to plan. He has to manipulate in order to obtain the things that God himself has ordained for him to obtain in most cases. Often the schemes that he's working on come to the same objective that God has put forth for him. But in the way he attacks the problem, he just complicates things. He makes it harder than it needs to be. He makes things unnecessarily messy. 
to introduce sinful consequences as well. In some cases, we've actually watched him work against God, where what he desires actually short circuits to some degree what God is trying to do in his life. As Jacob works in this way, he thinks he's working God's plan. He thinks he's obtaining God's blessing through his efforts. But in reality, what he's been doing in many cases is fighting against God. I think of it like one man in a rowboat with other men, all of them rowing in one direction except for the one guy who, for whatever reason, has gotten out of sync and he's rowing in the opposite direction. From his perspective, he's on the team working, but in reality, he's actually a detriment to the progress of the ship. And Jacob's relationship with the Lord is in that state. He's reached a point now at the end of chapter 32, a critical point where it's time for him to stop working against God and to start leaning on and resting in God and his work. So as Jacob prepares to return to the land that God has told him to return to, the land of Canaan, God is about to make an extraordinary appearance to Jacob, and he does it to teach Jacob an important lesson. Remember the storyline we left with? Jacob has heard that his brother Esau is coming from the south, from Edom, to meet Jacob in the Gilead, which is an area directly east of Canaan, of present-day Israel. It's in the land that today you would call Jordan, in the hill country called the Gilead, about midway north-south in the land of Jordan. Jacob is fearful that his brother is coming to attack him because of their last experience together 20 years earlier in which Jacob cheated Esau, or seemed to cheat Esau. And so his concern is for his own safety. So Jacob has taken the step of dividing his family into two camps in the hope that at least one of them might survive the coming battle with Esau. And as he anticipates encountering Esau the next morning, this day now comes to an end with Jacob making final preparations. In verse 22, we pick up the storyline at that moment. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the fjord of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So Jacob is sitting on the east side of the Jordan River in the Gilead. This is going to be particularly helpful if you have a map or have access to a map in your Bibles to to see what's happening here. If you don't, then perhaps later, if you care to, you can download the teaching notes from the website. And I took the, the liberty of putting a map in the notes so that you'd have something to look at. If you were to look at your map, you'll notice that the Jordan River runs north south. It's the border between Israel in the west and Jordan on the east, current day Jordan, or in Jacob's day, Gilead. There is another tributary that feeds the Jordan. This river is called the Jabbok. The name Jabbok just means empty, demoralized, or devastated. Appropriate terms, would you not agree, for Jacob's situation? The ford, as it's called here, or the tributary, it runs east-west. So if you don't have a map, you need to draw a picture in your mind. 
in which you note the Jordan going north-south and then coming from the east into the Jordan is this tributary called the Javik. And it goes mostly east-west until it reaches the Jordan River Valley. And then at the very last, it sort of dips southward and connects with the Jordan at a southwesterly angle. Jacob is coming from Haran. That's the place where Laban lived. So he's headed southwest from northeast to southwest, headed probably toward Bethel, his family home or his family traditional home in the land. So if he's headed in that direction, coming from where he's coming and going to where he's going, then he's going to cross from the north side of the Jabbok to the south side of the Jabbok right before he reaches the Jordan. So he's ready to cross from north to south. Now, at the same time, Esau is coming from Edom. Edom is directly south of this place. So the river Jabbok forms a natural barrier between Jacob on the north side of the river and Esau coming from the south side. So because Jacob has to travel in the direction of southwest to go to Bethel, he's moving his family toward the direction that Esau is coming from. Now, the river crossing is the first event we hear of, and this takes a little time and it involves a little bit of effort. Jacob has to help a family with animals, with servants, with equipment. He's got to move them across a river. So Jacob, we're told, helps his family move from the north side, the north bank to the south bank and into Esau's direction. Now, at the end of this process, Jacob stays on the north side of the river. He never crosses it himself. He reaches a point where everyone else and everything else has gone across. He is left completely alone on the north side of this river. Now, why did he not cross? Well, you might argue several reasons, I guess. Perhaps it became too dark as he finished the process and it became dangerous for him to cross by himself in the dark. Maybe he was too tired to make it across. Those are possible explanations, but the text gives us none. And so I think those are probably just speculation at best. The obvious answer, the obvious speculation is that he remains on the north side of the river out of fear of Esau, that Esau is coming for him and for him personally. And so while he has fear for his family, his primary concern is for his own safety. And if he's about to bed down overnight in a time and in an age where you don't have flashlights, you don't have guns, you don't have things that would help defend you in the middle of a fight at night, You're particularly vulnerable sleeping at night when you know that there is someone coming to attack you or you think there is. So the river provides a natural barrier. It's a way for you to separate yourself from your enemy and get a good night's sleep before you have to deal with him in the morning. So here's Jacob by himself on the north side of this river, completely alone in the Gilead. He has literally no one but himself, nothing but darkness. There's a poetic irony in his situation. Remember, Jacob, he's always been the guy that relied on his own strength. He's always been the guy that got his way by taking advantage of others at some level. And now he's got nothing and no one. Nothing to help him, no one to manipulate, no one to take advantage of. He's hidden himself here in an attempt to secure his own safety against an imagined enemy. And in the morning, he faces an uncertain and frightening prospect. And you know the guy is sitting in this place now terrified. And under these circumstances... God brings to Jacob an event that will cause Jacob to come to the end of himself. The text says that Jacob wrestled a man until daybreak. Now, the text brings us this news in such an abrupt manner. It doesn't even get its own verse. It's on the second half 
of an of, of a verse that starts with another thought. So because of the abrupt nature of this comment, it just comes out of nowhere. It's inevitable that as the reader, we're going to be a little confused at first, wondering, well, how did this happen? Who is this guy? Did the man attack Jacob while he was sleeping? Was it an ambush? How did this transpire? We don't know. I mean, we don't know those details because the text makes no attempt to explain how it came about. Arguably, it doesn't make an attempt because it doesn't matter. Those details are not the point. There's no reason here for us to get caught up in the human side of what's happening here because it's going to become clear soon enough that this is far from simply a human encounter. We're told these two wrestle all night. The word for wrestle in Hebrew literally is the word for hand-to-hand combat. In fact, that word comes from a Hebrew root word, which means dirt. So the word wrestle refers to the way men get on the ground and fight on the ground and get dirty in the ground when they're doing this kind of combat. So it means literally to get dusty on the ground. Don't imagine the sport of wrestling. Imagine a brawl, two men fighting for their lives until daybreak, we're told. Now, who is this man and why has he attacked Jacob? The way Moses narrates the story, we're allowed to wonder a little about this, as I mentioned. In fact, we didn't know the story already. If we had never read this book before, knowing what's happened up to this point might lead us to think that this is Esau. That, in other words, Jacob's fears have been realized. Esau has caught up with him in the middle of the night and has attacked him. And now they are in this life and death struggle. But as we're about to see, this is not Esau. In fact, this is no man at all. In verse 28, we learn that Jacob has been struggling with God himself. This is an appearance of a character in the Old Testament called the angel of the Lord. Now, he's not named here, but we know from other scripture that anytime you see a physical manifestation of the Godhead, it's always in the form of the second person, that is Christ. And in the Old Testament, prior to Christ taking incarnate form, that is the physical corporeal body of a human, his appearance comes in other ways, other manifestations. For example, the burning bush that Moses sees in Exodus, that is the angel of the Lord, we're told, that is the second person of the Godhead. The pillar of fire and cloud that the Israelites followed in the desert, that was the second person of the Godhead again, the angel of the Lord, Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, as these appearances are given to prophets, are given to Israel's kings and so on, these are always manifestations of Christ. Paul says in Colossians 1 that Christ is always the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 tells us that Christ is the radiance of the Father's glory. The thing we can see and experience in the Godhead physically is always an expression of Christ. Whether pre-incarnate or as he came in his first coming incarnate, that is how God makes his presence known into the physical creation. Notice then that God now, Christ, in this new form, in this pre-incarnate form, I should say, that God has engaged Jacob. Jacob did not engage God. God attacked Jacob. Now, we can make that conclusion simply because we know Jacob is not interested in a fight He's not looking for this fight. He doesn't perceive this person as a threat. They come upon him and they wrestle together now until the morning. The Lord is confronting Jacob here in this very unique way to teach him a lesson. Now, after this significant period of time, and by the way, that's not something to minimize for just a moment's thought, a whole night of wrestling, a whole night of fighting. I mean, don't you get tired after maybe 20 minutes when you were a little kid wrestling with your cousins or brothers or sisters? Can you imagine all night? Most of this time, you have to believe Jacob would have escaped had he been able to, that his mindset would have been not to engage in this if he didn't have to. 
God, being the aggressor here, has engaged Jacob and maintained this fight so that Jacob had no choice but to go through it. And after a period of time, Moses says the Lord had not prevailed against Jacob. Now, in the Hebrew, it's a bit unclear by the pronoun use or the lack thereof which person is being referred to. You learn it through the context by the way that the whole conversation plays out. You can trace back and identify who these pronouns refer to. And if you do that, you realize it was the Lord that we're told unable to prevail against Jacob, which is a completely confusing comment. How can the Lord fail to prevail over the strength of a mere man? Well, clearly, God has enough power to prevail. This is not a question of whether God could have prevailed or not. He clearly has the strength to prevail. This is not a test of strength, however. This is a test of wills. God is in a test of wills with Jacob. And at this moment, he has yet to prevail over Jacob's will, which is what necessitated the engagement in the first place. Jacob's will was directing him toward defending himself against this attacker and in the process to defeat this attacker. Would that not be the natural will of any man? We aren't faulting Jacob for that natural instinct. We share that natural instinct. The problem with that natural instinct is it's natural. And in the way scripture understands the word natural and teaches us about the word natural, the natural man is not the spiritual man. The natural man is the enemy of God. The natural man strives against God. What does the spiritual man do, though? He follows. He listens. He obeys. He submits. Everything Jacob has done in his life and is doing even now in the midst of this life and death struggle is calculated to obtain what he wants with his own strength to the undermining of his adversaries. That one sentence basically sums up Jacob's personality. The problem with Jacob's life is Jacob's will. His will has not been, is not fully submitted to the Lord who has called him and entered into a covenant with him. He is prideful. He is stubborn. He is deterministic in his own will. And all of those things have become a barrier to God using Jacob to the fullest extent of his glory. That is, in some respects, a testimony about all of us. The only difference between us and Jacob is perhaps degree. Degree of maturity, degree of submission, degree of obedience, degree of pride. But to some extent, he is characteristic of the state of the human nature in general. We think it's us until we know better, until God impresses upon us the truth. And by us, I mean, we think it's up to us. We think it's based on us. We think it's for us. But what happens over time by God's influence in our lives through the spirit, through the teaching of the word, through the humbling of our hearts, we come to recognize that what we started with was a completely backward, completely opposite understanding of what is actually true spiritually, that nothing revolves around us. Nothing is based on us. Nothing is for us. God cares about his glory in the eternal, and he is gracious enough to give us a place in that with him. By faith. And if you want a measure of how prideful and how stubborn he was, consider this. After hours and hours of fighting for his life, he has yet to call upon the Lord or seek the Lord's intervention to save him from this attacker. Well, at what point do you pray? Well, arguably it should be first. But if you've gone through this experience for a while, at what point in the midst of it do you say, I don't think I'm going to do this without God? And so in this test of wills, God, having not prevailed, according to Scripture, having not overcome Jacob's will yet, 
He resorts to entering into this physical confrontation. And now God knows that he is not going to engage in this forever with Jacob, that it needs to come to its appointed end sooner or later. God hastens that end. Imagine had Jacob called to the Lord at any point in that struggle and had he come to a point in his own will where he recognized his weakness and God's strength and said to himself, I need God to prevail for me. And he had called out for the Lord. You imagine if he had done that, he would have discovered that right there in his very face was the Lord he was calling for. The one who was wrestling him. Instead, he continues to fight in his own power. It's one of the chief ironies of the Bible. In fact, this story is you probably know is infamous. People talk about Jacob wrestling often because it's one of the chief ironies in the Bible. Jacob is fighting against the very one who has the power to save him from the fight. So after a time, the Lord decides, I'm going to increase the pressure on Jacob. I'm going to bring this to an end. And the scripture says he touches the thigh of Jacob and sets his hip out of joint. Now, the word in Hebrew for touch is naga. It literally means strike. This is supernatural. Clearly, God appearing in this way is all supernatural. There's, there's no intent on my part to diminish the supernatural quality of, of what's happening. But nonetheless, the text here makes clear that what God did in this form of man is strike in a hard blow sufficient to cause the dislocation of Jacob's hip. What you have to understand about that is the kind of blow required to make that happen is strength beyond the ability of normal men. The last bone that will break in your body is your femur. And the last joint in your body that you can knock out is the hip. It's the one with the most strength of, of sinew around it. Now, people do dislocate their hips, but it takes one heck of a blow to make that happen. A car accident, a fall from a great height. Those are not things that happen with somebody just knocking on your hip. Not unless that blow comes with supernatural strength. And, of course, that's what happened here. Now, the effects for Jacob would have been immediate and penetrating. Incredible pain. I was once wrestling in college and I was thrown to the mat directly on my side so that my shoulder dislocated in toward my body. That still remains one of the most painful experiences of my entire life. I remember it to this day because it was so painful. Take that pain and multiply it because your joint is going to make it worse even more in a bigger place like your hip. That pain is going to be even greater. So he is immediately struck by immense pain. There's no doubt. And secondly, that injury would have immobilized him. When I had my shoulder out of joint, anything that moved above my waist intensified the pain and my arm became completely useless. And this arm, of course, was just trying to hold this arm. If you lose the ability to move your hip, you're going to be basically on the ground. The only part of your body that probably still has any strength at all are your arms. And so at this point, Jacob has no chance of prevailing against this man. He is completely incapacitated in the fight. And at that point, then the nature of the struggle changes dramatically. Where before Jacob was fighting with the attacker, now we're told Jacob clings to the attacker. With what strength he had in his upper body, he's holding on to this guy that's been attacking him. And interestingly, now the attacker is trying to get away. And Jacob won't let him go. Now this seems bizarre when we think of how this has come about altogether. The whole thing seems to now be going backward. Because Jacob has switched from fighting and defending the guy to holding on to the guy. Where before he just wanted to get away and defend himself, now he doesn't want to let the guy go. Why? What would explain that? The only thing that explains it is that Jacob has come to recognize that this man is in some form a representative of God. 
He probably doesn't know exactly who this person is. We don't want to read beyond what's in the text. I don't want you to presume, for example, that he knew this was the second person of the Godhead in pre-incarnate form and blah, blah, blah. No, that's what we know now. But it was enough for him to understand that if someone could throw my hip out of joint with a blow like that, this is no ordinary man. It's probably why God chose that particular kind of injury, because almost anything else might be explained through normal human strength. Not this, though. This is beyond what Jacob thinks is possible. And that blow must have convinced Jacob this is no ordinary man. And with that, God, perhaps giving him spiritual insight, light bulbs go off in his head. And he's immediately struck by the fact that this encounter is not an ordinary encounter. This man is not an ordinary man. And the purposes behind this event are not for my destruction, but for something else entirely. In verse 26, when the angel of the Lord demands to be released from Jacob, Jacob begs him for a blessing. Now, that response is our proof that Jacob understood something was different about this person. This was someone who could bless me if they so desired. Now, here again, we ask the obvious question. Why can't the Lord escape Jacob's clutch? Didn't he have the power to do that? Well, of course. He had the power earlier to defeat Jacob had he wished. He has the power to run away from Jacob now if he wishes. Therefore, we must conclude the Lord is playing his part here in the encounter prompting certain responses from Jacob for some greater purpose. And Jacob, for his part, he's slowly but surely catching on to what this is all about. He is lying wounded, tired, and daybreak is coming. What does daybreak mean in this story? The reason daybreak is essential to the story, the reason it keeps coming up, is daybreak in this context is synonymous with the arrival of Esau. With what Jacob believes to be A time of reckoning, a time of danger, a time of destruction for him and his family. And the clock is ticking down. The bomb is about to explode, so to speak. Here comes daybreak. And with daybreak comes Esau. And in his condition, Jacob is as desperate now as any man could be. For not only now is he tired and weak and injured, but now unable to defend himself against a coming enemy. But he knows something else. He knows he has the Lord or some representative of the Lord in his grasp. And he is not going to let this guy go his last hope in the face of this enemy. And so he demands a blessing, a rescue. Protect me is what he's asking for. After an entire night of a physical confrontation, followed by a serious injury, only then does Jacob seek the Lord's blessing. Well, better late than never. For all of us, better late than never. God has given every man, every woman, physical strength of some degree, intellectual abilities to some degree, wealth and resources to some degree. Nobody has nothing. Everybody has something. But those things are given to us only so that we might enjoy a life serving God with them. That's their only purpose in an eternal point of view. They are not to become replacements for our dependence on God. I think at the core of Jesus's message when he says it is in It's difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven as it is for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. The hyperbola of that statement is intended to reflect the reality of the human heart, that the more self-dependent we become, the less our nature is driven to look to God and depend on him. And in fact, we are equally dependent on God, regardless of how much strength or how many resources he has given us. I'm fond of telling people if they have a job that your income is no less 
dependent on God now when you're employed than it was when you were out of work and wondering where your next check or next meal was going to come from. That though it felt more like you were dependent on God when you had no job and though it felt like you really needed to seek him for your needs during that time, the reality was when you were sitting fat, dumb and happy, so to speak, in that job, getting that regular paycheck, you were just as dependent on God. At any moment, all of that could change. Ask Job. So he is a man, Jacob is a man with resources, with physical abilities, with gifts given from God and a covenant more than anything, a covenant, a promise from God. But he is trusting in those physical things and not in the Lord so often. And even for a man or woman of faith, we may be tempted to believe at times that those physical things God has given us are the manifestation of God's power in our life. I think that's where the old adage that God helps those who helps themselves. I think the the fallacy of that adage comes from a thinking, a, a pioneer Western libertarian thinking that believes that the things we have in the material world are the manifestations of God's provision. They are his power in our life. They are proof of blessing. No, they're not. They're temporal and passing. You are no less in God's care if you're penniless. You have no more power in your life if you have all those things. Those things are passing. They pass through our hands. They don't define our relationship with God. They certainly don't define his pleasure with us. I wonder if Jacob would have been a man who might have agreed with that adage. God helps me because I help myself. God blessed me with Laban because I was smart and I tried hard. Or maybe God just blessed you because he's faithful even when you're faithless, Jacob. God helps those who recognize their dependence on him and turn to him for a blessing. That's the teaching of Scripture. And that's where God now has delivered Jacob. All his wealth is gone. His family is gone. His servants are gone. He's alone. He's wounded. He's vulnerable. There's no scheme that solves this problem. There's no plan that's going to get him rescued at this point. He has no hope apart from God. And that's where God wanted him. And so he calls to God, clinging to him for grace. The irony for Jacob, again, is that he has always been in this situation. This is always where he's been. He just didn't perceive it. I'm reminded back to the letter out of Revelation chapter 3, the letter that's written to the church in Laodicea. Though they thought they were rich, though they thought they had everything, God, through Christ, reminds them they have nothing. Because what they trusted in was temporal and passing. Let's hope that we don't get to the point, individually, where we become so enamored with what God has given us, And so incorrect in our thinking that we come to live and depend upon it, that he has to take us through a wrestling match like this, that he has to bring us to the end of ourself so that when we have nothing, we'll finally understand where our dependence really lies. Let's hope he doesn't have to do that for us. But friends, though I can't tell you what he will do in every case for each of us, that's not in my knowledge to know. I can tell you based on scripture, God has the tendency to do this, to bring men to the end of themselves so that they might understand how truly dependent we are on him. Jacob's lesson for all of us is not to force God to bring us there, though he's prepared to do it. Let's look at the response now that God gives Jacob. The Lord asked Jacob, what is your name? Now here again, does the Lord know Jacob's name? Yes. So the question is introduced here to provoke a thought in Jacob's head. That's one basic answer you should have every time you see God asking questions, because God doesn't need to ask any questions. So every time he asks the question of anyone for any reason, we understand that what he's doing is prompting a thought in the mind of the person he's talking to or in the mind of us, the reader. It's not for lack of knowledge. It's for us to get the point. So 
in the question that he asks Jacob, what Jacob must have been thinking as he answered it with his own name, Jacob, is he must have been remembering the meaning of his name. He couldn't help but remember it because every time he spoke the word, he was speaking Hebrew for what it meant, which we know is supplanter, deceiver, or you might say a man who contends with other men in order to obtain what he wants. And so the Lord said, what's your name again? Jacob. Oh, yeah, that's right. Supplanter. Yeah, yeah. Deceiver. Well, you know what? That's not your name anymore. And God changes his name. No longer will he be called Jacob. Now he will be called Israel. Israel, we say. The name Israel literally means strives with God. Strives with God. The word could also mean, in a sense, God fighting for him. God fights for Israel, in other words. Where before Jacob fought with men in his own power, now you see the Lord fighting on his behalf. God and Jacob striving together, in other words. This is a prophetic renaming of Jacob, and you can tell that just by remembering the history of Israel. It's prophetic not only for Jacob himself personally, God fighting for him, and most specifically with the encounter he's about to have with Esau. God here is saying, I'm on your side. I will fight this fight for you. But it's prophetic also for the nation that takes its name after Jacob. Throughout history, God favors his covenant with Israel. God fights for Abraham's descendants. God defends and upholds the promises he gave them in his covenant. That will continue evermore. And that's God's purpose in the name. Do you remember when Abram had his name changed to Abraham? It happened in chapter 17, right at the point where God gives the covenant of circumcision. So Abram has to take on the covenant of circumcision in his body, change his body and those of his family. And when he did that, God changed the name of Abram to Abraham. And you remember how he did that? He took Abram and he split the name apart in the middle and he put part of God's name in the middle. Remember, God's name is I am Hayah. The Jews took that and made it Y-H-W-H so that you couldn't pronounce it. And that became what you see in the Bible when you see the word Lord. That's actually Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. But it comes from Hayah, from the verb to be, the one that God gives Moses when he says, I am. And so Hayah is mostly the breath of God, they say. So Abram became Abraham. The, the voice of God put in the middle of his name. That was typical covenantial policy. When you entered into a covenant, sometimes people's names were changed to reflect the name of the person they were in covenant with. And so that's what God did for Abram. He gains a new name, signifying that he is now bound to God by God's promises. And now you see God doing the same thing for Jacob. Part of Jacob's name now, Israel. El is Lord. So you have Israel, God now in the name of this man. Why? Because Jacob turned to the Lord. He begged the Lord for mercy and for blessing. And now God turns and confirms his covenant with Jacob. So think about the process here. First, God gives Jacob a reminder of the covenant. How did he give him a reminder? In his physical body. He will forever limp now as a result of what God has done in this injury. And God changes his name to include a reference to God in the name, forever memorializing their covenant. And the same experience for Abram, a permanent change in his body and a permanent change in his name. Now, in both cases, these men had already entered into the covenant at an earlier point. These confirmation moments were not the moment in which they became in covenant, but are the moments in which the covenants are externally symbolized. You have a similar pattern in the Christian faith. By faith, we enter into a covenant with Christ. By the blood of the new covenant, we become saved at some subsequent point. 
we have a physical manifestation, a physical representation of that saving moment we call baptism, which is the outward sign of the earlier moment. But it's a confirmation step, an important place in the record of our faith. Let's finish the chapter finally with Jacob asking for the identity of the one who blessed him. Verses 29 through 32. Then Jacob asked him and said, well, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Peniel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Well, God answers Jacob here in the request for a name by simply asking, don't you already know? Do you need to ask? Do you really don't know who I am? It's clear that Jacob knew. Jacob's request for a blessing proved that he knew. And his response to the answer that he's given shows that he knows because he says, I've seen God face to face. But God does not give Jacob his name. God reserved for Moses the moment when his name would be revealed. And until that time, he was to be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And nothing less and nothing more. Surely, Jacob knew this was God, for he names this place Peniel, which literally means the face of God, because he had seen God face to face. Now, let's be clear. He hadn't actually seen God's face, because if he had, he would have died. What he saw was the physical manifestation of the second person of the Godhead, which is a theophany. And as such, not literally seeing God's face, but from Jacob's point of view, it was as good as seeing God's face. And we can understand that. From this moment forward, you'll see a new Jacob in the record of Scripture at times. Because you're going to notice in the record, there's going to be times when Moses still calls this guy Jacob. Interestingly, in the story of Abraham, from the moment he became Abraham, the name Abram disappears from the record. But in this man's life, there are going to be chapters, whole chapters where Moses calls him Jacob. And that will be followed by chapters that call him Israel. That will be followed by chapters that go back to calling him Jacob. The reason Moses does this is he gives this change for us as a sign, as an indicator to help us follow the heart of this man. When Moses uses the name Jacob, it will indicate moments in Jacob's life when he is reverting to the old nature, living in the flesh. And when he uses the name Israel, it is a sign that he is walking with the Lord in his new nature. In other words, he's just like us. Although we don't get the convenience of someone changing our name from week to week to give us that outward indication of where we really stand with the Lord. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, maybe it wouldn't be. On second thought, no, no. So Jacob limps away. One last thought as we close. This tradition of not eating the ligaments of the hip, that is not continued. That's disappeared from Jewish practice. It's not part of kosher today. Jews don't practice it. It was true in, in Moses' day when he wrote this, but it must have disappeared at some point after. Uh, that simply means it was tradition and nothing more. Heavenly Father, We reflect on the text this morning, Father, with a full appreciation that as we learn more about Jacob, we're learning more about ourselves. We're no better than Jacob, Father, and probably in many ways we fall short even of his faithfulness at times. But we also know, Father, that he had the same access to the Spirit. He had the same truth, the same Lord. And because of those things, Father, he had promises like we do that will bring us above who we are in our nature and give us hope to be better by our spirit. We thank you for that shared opportunity. 
Let us learn from all that he has experienced, all that Scripture teaches, so that we may prove to be better, not in our own power, but because, Father, we stand on the shoulders of his experience and gain the knowledge that you provide in your Scripture to be better by our obedience. Help us be men and women, Father, who bring that testimony to life in our own lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.